Section 7 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, A Chronicle of Our Own Time, by Oscar D. Skelton. In Opposition, 1878-1887, Part 3. Once the back of the revolt was broken, the storm broke out in eastern Canada. In one way the rebellion had made for national unity. Nova Scotia and Ontario and the West had thrilled in common suspense and common endeavour, but this gain was much more than offset by the bitter antagonism which developed between Ontario and Quebec, an antagonism which for a time threatened to wreck the Dominion. The two provinces saw different sides of the shield. Ontario saw the murderer of Thomas Scott, an Ontario man and an Orangeman, a second time stirring up revolt, and cried for summary punishment. Quebec saw the grievances which had stirred the men of French blood to rebel. Riel was tried in Regina in September and found guilty of treason with a recommendation to mercy. The Queen's Bench of Manitoba confirmed the verdict, and the government, in spite of many protests, refused to grant a pardon or to commute the sentence to imprisonment. On the 16th of November, 1885, Riel's checkered existence ended on the scaffold at Regina. Now the storm raged with renewed fury. The Liberal Party all held the government responsible for the outbreak, but were not a unit in condemning the execution of Riel. By clever tactics, the government took advantage of this divergence. Early in the session of 1886, a Quebec conservative, Auguste Philippe Landry, moved a resolution condemning the execution. The Liberals had intended to shift the discussion to the record of the government, but before they could propose an amendment, the Minister of Public Works, Hector Langevin, moved the previous question, thus barring any further motion. Forced to vote on Landry's resolution, most of the Ontario Liberals, including Mackenzie and Cartwright, sided with the government. Blake and Laurier took the other side. The crisis brought Wilfrid Laurier to the front. Hitherto he had been considered, especially in Ontario, as a man of brilliant promise, but not yet of the stature of veterans like Blake and Mackenzie and Cartwright. But now an occasion had come which summoned all his latent powers, and henceforth his place in the first rank was unquestioned. It was an issue peculiarly fitted to bring out his deepest feelings, his passion for liberty and straightforward justice, his keen realization of the need of harmony between French and English, a harmony that must be rooted in sympathy and understanding. He had faced a hostile Quebec and was to face it again, in defense of the rights of the English-speaking provinces. Now he faced a hostile Ontario and told Toronto exactly what he told Montreal. In the great meeting of protest which was held in the Champ de Mars in Montreal on the Sunday after Riel's execution, Mr. Laurier took a leading part and a year later he spoke before a great audience in Toronto, and pressed home the case against the government, that the half-breeds were denied for long years right and justice, rights which were admitted as soon as they were asked by bullets. But it was in the House of Commons that he rose to the full height of the theme and of his powers, seconding Blake's indictment of the government in July 1885 and replying to Sir John Macdonald, he analyzed mercilessly the long record of neglect. Then, replying to the contention that the grievances were petty and that Riel alone was to blame, he made a pointed contrast. Few men have there been anywhere who have wielded greater sway over their fellow countrymen than did Mr. Papineau at a certain time in the history of Lower Canada, and no man ever lived who had been more profusely endowed by nature to be the idol of a nation. A man of commanding presence, of majestic countenance, of impassioned eloquence, of unblemished character, of pure, disinterested patriotism, for years he held over the hearts of his fellow countrymen almost unbounded sway, and even to this day the mention of his name will arouse throughout the length and breadth of Lower Canada a thrill of enthusiasm in the breasts of all, men or women, old or young. 
What was the secret of that great power he held at one time? Was it simply his eloquence, his commanding intellect, his patriotism? No doubt they all contributed, but the main cause of his authority over his fellow countrymen was this, that at that time his fellow countrymen were an oppressed race, and he was the champion of their cause. But when the day of relief came, the influence of Mr. Papineau, however great it might have been and however great it still remained, ceased to be paramount. When eventually the Union Act was carried, Papineau violently assailed it, showed all his defects, deficiencies, and dangers, and yet he could not rouse his followers and the people to agitate for the repeal of that act. What was the reason? The conditions were no more the same. Imperfect as was the Union Act, it still gave a measure of freedom and justice to the people, and men who once at the mere sound of Mr. Papineau's voice would have gladly courted death on battlefield or scaffold, then stood silent and irresponsive, though he asked from them nothing more than a constitutional agitation for a repeal of the Union Act. Conditions were no more the same. Tyranny and oppression had made rebels of the people of Lower Canada, while justice and freedom made them the true and loyal subjects which they have been ever since. And now to tell us that Louis Riel, simply by his influence, could bring those men from peace to war, to tell us that they had no grievances, to tell us that they were brought into a state of rebellion either through pure malice or through imbecile adherence to an adventurer, is an insult to the intelligence of the people at large, and an unjust aspersion to the people of the Saskatchewan. When the debate on the Landry motion came on in the following session, Laurier and Blake again shared the honours, along with the new Minister of Justice, John S. D. Thompson, who spoke forcefully for the government. Mr. Laurier's speech on this occasion was perhaps the greatest of his career, and made a profound impression. He was called upon to speak unexpectedly, late at night, through the tactics of the government in not putting up a speaker. Two dull speeches had nearly emptied the house. No one rose to follow, and the speaker had asked whether the question should be put when Mr. Laurier rose. The house filled quickly, and for two hours he held it breathless, so that not a sound but the orator's ringing voice and the ticking of the clock could be heard in the chamber. When he sat down, the opinion of the house was unanimous that this was one of the rare occasions of a parliamentary lifetime. Thomas White generously voiced the feelings of the government benches when he declared, I think it is a matter of common pride to us that any man in Canada can make on the floor of Parliament such a speech as we listened to last night. Edward Blake declared the speech was the crowning proof of French domination, my honourable friend not content with having for a long time in his own tongue borne away the palm of parliamentary eloquence, has invaded ours, and in that field has pronounced a speech which, in my humble judgment, merits this compliment because it is the truth, that it was the finest parliamentary speech ever pronounced in the Parliament of Canada since Confederation. Blake and Laurier differed in their view of the tactics to be followed by the opposition. Mr. Blake wished to throw the chief emphasis upon their question of Riel's insanity, leaving aside the thorny question of the division of responsibility. Mr. Laurier wanted to go further. While equally convinced that Riel was insane, he thought that the main effort of the opposition should be to divert attention from Riel's sorry figure and concentrate it on the question of the government's neglect. Accordingly, in this speech Mr. Laurier reviewed once more the conduct of the government, arraigning it unsparingly for its common share in the guilt of the rebellion. He denied that the people of Quebec were demanding that no French-Canadian should be punished, guilty or not guilty. As for Riel, who shared with the government the responsibility for the blood and sufferings of the revolt, he urged with Blake that it was impossible to consider him sane and accountable for his actions. Sir, he declared, I am not one of those who look upon Louis Riel as a hero. Nature had endowed him with many brilliant qualities, but nature had denied him that supreme quality without which all other qualities, however brilliant, are of no avail. 
Nature had denied him a well-balanced mind. At his worst he was a fit subject for an asylum. At his best he was a religious and political monomaniac. True, some of the government's experts had reported that, while insane on religious questions, Riel was otherwise accountable for his actions. But other experts had held him insane without qualification. In any event, the same experts for the government had declared that Riel's secretary, an English half-breed, William Jackson, was insane on religious questions and dazed at times, but that his actions were not uncontrollable. Yet Quebec bitterly reflected that one of these men had been acquitted, sent to an asylum, and then allowed to escape, while the other was sent to the gallows. Jackson is free today, and Riel is in his grave. On wider grounds, the government should have stood for clemency. Who was right in the United States after the Civil War, President Johnson, who wished to try Lee for treason, or General Grant, who insisted that he be not touched? Twenty years after, the unity of North and South proves unmistakably Grant's far-seeing wisdom. We cannot make a nation of this new country by shedding blood, Mr. Laurier concluded. Our prisons are full of men who, despairing of getting justice by peace, sought it by war, who, despairing of ever being treated like freemen, took their lives in their hands rather than be treated as slaves. They have suffered greatly, and they are suffering still, yet their sacrifice will not be without reward. They are endurance today, but the rights for which they were fighting have been acknowledged. We have not the report of the Commission yet, but we know that more than 2,000 claims, so long denied, have at last been granted. And more, still more, we have it in the speech from the throne that at last representation is to be granted to those territories. This side of the House long sought, but sought in vain, to obtain that measure of justice. It could not come then, but it came after the war. It came as the last conquest of that insurrection, and again I say that their country has conquered with their martyrdom. And if we look at that one fact alone, there was cause sufficient, independent of all other, to extend mercy to the one who is dead and to those who live. In Parliament, for all the eloquence of Laurier and Blake, the government had its way. In the country, the controversy raged in more serious fashion. In Quebec, Honoré Mercier, the brilliant, tempestuous leader of the Liberals, carried on in a violent agitation, and in January 1887 rode the whirlwind into power. Wild and bitter words were many in the contest, and they found more than an answer in Ontario, where the leading ministerial organ, the Mail, declared it better to smash Confederation into its original fragments rather than yield to French dictation. The general elections held in February 1887 proved that in Ontario the guilt of Riel was more to the fore than the misdeeds of the government, and the Conservatives lost only two seats. On the other hand, the Liberals gained less in Quebec in the Dominion contest, where the Riel question was a legitimate issue, than in the provincial contest, where it properly had no place. The influence of the Church, though now transferred to Mercier in provincial politics, remained on the side of Sir John Macdonald in Dominion politics. Counting on the Liberal side, the former Conservatives who had deserted the government, the returns showed the province about equally divided. But after it was seen that Sir John was again in power, several of the wanderers returned to his fold, influenced by his personal ascendancy or by the loaves and fishes of patronage and office. End of In Opposition, 1878-1887, to 1887, Part 3